And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. <clears throat> Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's March 16th, 75th day of the year. 290 days remain to the year's over with. And man, have we got some screwy holidays, observances for today. It's National Panda Day, <clears throat> Absolutely Incredible Kid Day, Black Press Day. Just kind of support independent journalism, reading, subscribing to, and supporting black-owned publications today. But then again, I would say every publication, no matter who owns it, as long as they give uh, well-balanced information, unlike uh, CNN, Companies that care day, everything you do is right day. This is what our current administration celebrates every day. Freedom of Information Day, Lips Appreciation Day, National Archer Day, when you make everybody named Archer feel extra special, National Artichoke Day, National Close the Gap Day. Uh, that focuses on health. Uh, Issues of Australia's indigenous people. National Curl Crush Day. National Farm Rescuer Day. Um, <clears throat> farm rescuers help farmers by volunteering their time, talents, and financial resources. And in my many years, I've never seen one. National Vaccination Day. No Selfies Day. Orange and Lemons Day. Robert Goddard Day. Um, he created the first fuel, liquid fuel rocket. Uh, St. Erho's Day. This uh, gets people ready for in the right frame of mind for uh, the festivities of St. Patrick's Day. And Young Careers, um, Young Carers Action Day. <clears throat> so. Uh, as you might guess, we still have the weeks and months and all their celebrations. Well, in 934, Ming Xiang declares himself emperor and establishes later Shu as a new state independent of later Tang. Uh, 1190, the massacre of Jews at Clifford's Tower in York. 1244, over 200 Cathars refused to recant their beliefs, are burned to death after the fall of Monsigur. If you remember, um, the Cathars was a, uh, a group that didn't bend knee to the uh, Catholic Pope, and he had a crusade against these people in Europe, most in southern France, and it was a massacre. 1621, Samoset and Mohican visits the settlers of Plymouth Colony and greets them, welcoming the mission. My name is Samoset. 1660, the Long Parliament of England is dissolved so as to prepare for the new convention parliament. 1792, King Gustav III of Sweden is shot and dies on March 29th. Uh, 1802, the Army Corps of Engineers is established to found and operate the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. I was offered a, an appointment to West Point. I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. 
1815, Prince Wilhelm proclaimed himself king of the United Kingdom of the Netherlands, the first constitutional monarch in the Netherlands. 1898, in Melbourne, the representatives of five colonies adopted a constitution that would become the basis of the Commonwealth of Australia. 1916, the 7th and 10th U.S. Cavalry Regiments, uh, under John Pershing, crosses the Mex- U.S.-Mexican border to uh, join the hunt for Pancho Villa. Uh, the 20th Infantry also went. I was in that unit in South America. And um, I found a full photographic record of the entire operation. Of course, when uh, the peanut man gave uh, the Panama Canal Zone back to uh, Panama so that they can give it to the Chinese, um, all those historical records vanished. Nobody seems to know what happened to them. Uh, I was told by a... Uh, very old gentleman who was living in Las Cruces, New Mexico. He had been a uh, an aide to General Pershing. He lied about his age, enlisted at 14, and uh, went to Mexico with Pershing. And he said the whole thing was, uh, uh, well, it wasn't an actual military operation as much as it was a testing uh, facility to... Um, test all the new equipment because we knew we were going to get involved in World War I and we wanted to test all that equipment under wartime conditions. Pancho Villa was actually paid a quarter of a million dollars in gold to attack Columbus, New Mexico in order to give us the opportunity to go into Mexico. And he said in the evening Villa and his senior officers would come down from the hills and play poker with General Pershing and his staff until the wee hours of the morning they need to go back up in the hills and rejoin their forces. Pershing and Villa were good friends. In fact, Pancho Villa was the first one to offer uh, Pershing, uh, um, well, come to see what he could do for him after Pershing's family was killed at the uh, in a fire. 1918, the Finnish Civil War, Battle of Lakapoha, is infamous for its bloody aftermath, is a Whites executed 70 to 100 um, capitulated Reds. The Reds were the communists, and the Whites were the uh, those who believed in uh, democracy. 1924, in accordance with the Treaty of Roman, Fiume becomes annexed uh, as part of Italy. On this day in 1926, Robert Goddard launches the first liquid-fueled rocket at Auburn, Massachusetts. 1935, on this date, Adolf Hitler orders Germany to rearm herself in violation of the Treaty of Versailles. Conscription is reintroduced uh, in order to build up the Wehrmacht as quickly as possible. 1936, warmer than normal temperatures rapidly melt the snow and ice on the upper Allegheny and Mongahela rivers. And this leads to a major flood in Pittsburgh. 1939, from Prague Castle, Hitler proclaims Bohemian Moravia, German protectorates. 1941, Operation Appearance takes place to reestablish British Somaliland. 1945, the Battle of Iwo Jima ends on this date. There were still small pockets of Japanese resistance. And in fact, the last um, Japanese soldier, uh, if I'm not mistaken, walked out of the jungle and gave himself up uh, sometime in the 80s. 
1945, 90% of Wurzburg, Germany is destroyed in only 20 minutes by British bombers. Results in at least 4,000 deaths. 1962, Flying Tiger Line Flight 739 disappears in the Western Pacific Ocean with all 107 on board. Um, missing and presumed dead. 1966, the launch of Gemini 8 with astronauts Armstrong and Scott would perform the first docking of two spacecrafts in orbit. 1968, on this date, the mainline massacre occurred. Between 347 and 500 Vietnamese villagers are killed by American troops. Um, no one seemed to realize that one of the American soldiers had a camera. And he made a fortune selling the pictures to uh, mainstream media. Uh, William Calley, the lieutenant, became uh, the poster child for evil. He married a, the daughter of uh, a jewelry store owner in uh, Columbus, Georgia. I met him several times. Not very nice young man, but not the sharpest knife in the drawer. 1969, a Vyasa McDonald Douglas DC 9 crashes in Maracaibo, Venezuela. 155 people die. 1977, the assassination of Kamal Jumblat, main leader of the anti government forces in the Lebanese Civil War. Nineteen seventy eight, the former Italian Prime Minister Aldo Moro is kidnapped and murdered by his captors. Also in seventy eight, a Bulgarian a Balkan Bulgarian Airlines Tupolev T U one hundred thirty four crashes near Gabara in Bulgaria. Seventy three people die. Also on the same date, the super tanker Amakal Cadiz splits in two after running aground on the uh, ports of rocks three miles off the coast of Brittany. Results in the largest oil spill in history up to that time. Uh, 1979, the Sino-Vietnamese War. People's Liberation Army crosses the border back into China, ending officially ending the war. Uh, 1984, William Buckley, CIA station, ship in Le- station chief in Lebanon, is kidnapped by Hezbollah, dies in captivity. Also in 85 on this date, Associated Press newsman Terry Anderson is taken hostage in Beirut. He's not released until December 1991. I wonder if that was a captive. Uh, the years of captivity counted toward retirement. 1988, Iran-Contra. Colonel Oliver North and Vice Admiral John Poindexter indicted on charges of conspiracy to defraud the United States. I uh, knew Oliver North at uh, Fort Benning. He was uh, a Marine officer. In spite of that, he was uh, allowed to sit at the table with the big boys. 1988, Halabaha chemical attack. The Kurdish town of Halabaha in Iraq is attacked with a mix of poison gas and nerve agents. Nerve agents on the order of Saddam Hussein. 5,000 people died and over 10,000 were injured. 1988, also saw the Troubles. Royal Ulster, uh, Ulster loyalist militant Michael Stone attacks a provisional IRA funeral in Belfast with pistols and grenades. Um, three people, one of them a member of the provisional IRA, are killed. More than 60 others are wounded. 1995, Mississippi formally ratifies the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, becoming the last state to 
approved the abolition of slavery. Thirteenth Amendment was officially ratified in 1865. 2001, a series of bomb blasts in a city of Xihuahua, China, kills 108 and injures 38 others. The biggest mass murder in China in decades. Uh, 2003, American activist uh, Rachel Corey is killed uh, in Rafah by being run over by an Israeli Defense Force bulldozer while trying to obstruct the demolition of a home. See, that's the problem with activists. They're so used to running their mouth, they don't realize that there can be repercussions. And she thought running out in front of a bulldozer and yelling her slogans was a smart thing to do. Not really. 2005, Israel officially hands over Jericho to Palestinian control. 2014, Crimea votes in a controversial referendum to succeed from Ukraine to join Russia. I wonder what they think about that now. 2016, a bomb detonates in a bus carrying government employees in Peshawar, Pakistan. Kills 15 and injures 30. Also on this date, in 2016, two suicide bombers detonate their explosives at a mosque during morning prayer on the outskirts of Maduguri, Nigeria. Kills 24 and injures 18. And what did they prove? That they're stupid people born every day. 2020, Dow Jones Industrial Average falls by 2,997.1, single largest point drop in history and second largest percentage drop ever at 12.93%. An even greater crash than Black Monday in 1929. This follows U.S. Federal Reserve announcing it'll cut its target interest rate to uh, zero to 0.25 percent. 2021 Atlanta spa shootings: eight people are killed and one's injured in a trio of shootings at spas in and near Atlanta, Georgia. Suspects arrested on that same day. And in 2022, a 7.4 magnitude earthquake occurs off the coast of Fukushima, Japan. Kills four and injures 225. Well, I'm sure there's other things I haven't covered that happened on this date. But uh, we're going to go back to talking about some unsolved murders. Now, this next one, as I said yesterday, I'd done a lot of research on when I was in college many moons ago. I was told to write a uh, seven-page paper about some uh, murderer, and the example the professor gave was um, Sam Shepard. And I said, since the court overturned his conviction, how can you say he was a murderer? Well, he just was. And if you don't believe it, prove it. My seven-page paper turned into almost 300 pages. Um, I even had the transcript of the trial and I wanted a great detail I figured out who probably was the killer uh, of course um, thanks to the mainstream media in uh, Chicago I think that's where it was um, everybody was just positive Sam Shepard was the killer now you may remember Sam Shepard because that case gave rise to the TV series The Fugitive, starring David Jansen. And uh, 
very long-running series. Everybody hunted for the one-armed man. Well, there was an unknown individual involved who, as far as I know, was never identified. But then again, the case, the police uh, that investigated it, it reminded me considerably of the Keystone Cops. The attitude was, we know who the killer was, now let's just prove it. And that is not a way to do a criminal investigation. Starting point should be somebody was murdered. Now, let's look at who profited and go from there. Well, the victim in this particular case was Marilyn Shepard. And her murder and a subsequent trial of her prosperous, good-looking doctor husband is cast a long shadow. Ernest, Ernest Hemingway wrote, uh, A trial like this, with its elements of doubt, is the greatest human story of all. This is the real thing. This trial is everything the public clamors for. Now, it was July 4th, 1954. On that particular day, Marilyn Shepard was bludgeoned to death with an unknown instrument in the bedroom of her very upscale home. With her husband, the prime suspect, uh, the murder led to one of the longest and most controversial murder investigations and trials in American legal history. Dr. Sam Shepard, an osteopath, lived in a two-story Dutch colonial home in the suburb of Bay Village, Ohio, overlooking Lake Erie. His wife, Marilyn, was a very attractive Sunday school teacher, and they had one son, also named Samuel. His nickname was Chip. And at the time of her death, Marilyn was four months pregnant with their second child. Well, on the evening of July 3rd, 1954, the couple were entertaining neighbors, and they ate dinner together before watching the sunset over Lake Erie. And at dusk, they went indoors to watch the 1945 movie, Strange Holiday. Now, Dr. Shepard had a busy day at his surgical practice, and he dozed off in a daybed in the living room. The neighbors left about midnight, and... Marilyn Shepard went upstairs to their bedroom, leaving her husband asleep on the daybed, which is not an unusual occurrence, according to um, the evidence that was gathered. And also, evidence also showed she removed her nail polish and went to bed, leaving the bedside uh, light on in case uh, Dr. Shepard woke up and came upstairs. When he was working late, Marilyn would often leave the light on for his late night to return. But what happened next has shocked and baffled the world for over, what, 70 years now? According to Shepard, he woke up at about 4 o'clock in the morning. What woke him up was Marilyn screaming his name. He said, I really can't explain what it was. It wasn't actually a scream. It was a name, though. So he ran upstairs to the bedroom where he grappled with a white form before being struck on the back of his head and knocked out. And when Shepard regained his senses, he heard noises downstairs and went to where the noise was coming and discovered a bushy-haired man running away from the house. 
He chased this man through the garden and down to the shores of the lake where a struggle ensued. Now, during the, this altercation, Shepard uh, was knocked unconscious again. Wasn't having a good evening, or morning, rather. When he came to, the man was gone, so Shepard ran back to the house to check on his wife and son. He found his son sleeping peacefully, and when he entered his in his wife's bedroom, he found the body of his wife sprawled on the bed, her brown hair matted in a puddle of her own blood. She'd been attacked repeatedly. Later estimates show it, uh, showed it between 27 and 35 times with such force that the, the bones below her eye and around her mouth were actually detached from her face. Her nose was broken, two teeth were missing, and a nail on her left hand had been torn away, presumably when she was trying to defend herself against her attacker. Her front teeth were snapped off at the gum, indicating that she may have bitten her killer. Her pajama top was lifted up above her breast, and her underwear had been removed and was dangling from her right leg. Bedroom walls was splattered with blood. Well, news of the murder made headlines across the country. Leo Stowicki, a neighbor of the Shepherds, uh, contacted police to inform him he had spotted a strange man near the Shepherds' home in the early hours of the day that Marilyn was killed. Said he noticed the man as he was coming back from a fishing trip in Sandusky at about 2.30 in the morning. As his headlights illuminated the road, he saw the man standing in the road in front of the shepherd's house. Said the man was tall and bushy-haired and wearing a white shirt. This description matched the one shepherd had given of the man he had fought with in the bedroom and later on the shorefront. Two more witnesses, Richard and Betty, uh, Knitter would later testify that also seen a man with bushy hair outside the shepherd home about 3 o'clock in the morning. Had a terrified look on his face, according to Richard. Nevertheless, in spite of these witnesses, the police announced that they had essentially ruled out any theory of a casual intruder. He must have gotten out their Ouija board because there was no evidence that would have supported it. Now, though a doctor concluded Shepard couldn't have inflicted the wounds he sustained on himself, investigators now suspected he had fabricated the story of the fracas with an intruder and killed his wife himself. Shepard's son remained asleep during the entire attack, and it seemed that the family dog, Coco, had also remained silent throughout the night, which means the dog knew whoever the attacker was, which fit in with the theory I came up with, um, what? Fifty years ago? The drawers in the shepherd's desk had been pulled out, but no items were missing. His doctor's bag was turned over, but nothing was missing again. Investigators noted the sports trophies belonging to both Sam and Marilyn had been damaged, but the damage could have occurred before the day of the murder. I mean, they ruled out anything that would have supported Shepard's version. Matters worsened for Shepard following revelations his marriage wasn't a happy one. Conservative Cleveland was shocked. Doctor had at least one extramarital affair, which he initially denied. Newspapers began to run headlines such as, Why is Sam Shepard in jail? And since the newspapers were pretty much running this investigation, uh, the police did their best to do what the newspaper ordered them to do. Now, two weeks after Marilyn Shepard's murder, Shepard was arrested, and his trial began. Uh, his first trial began in Ohio on October 18, 1954. Newspapers and TV stations covered it extensively. 
Upper-class lifestyle of the shepherds added an extra element of glamour. The judge, uh, uh, Edward uh, Blythen, admitted to one newspaper columnist his belief Shepard was guilty as hell before any evidence was even presented. Now, a judge with a pre-existing decision may sound strange to you, but I've seen the same thing here in El Paso. I even had a federal judge say he would never rule against his friends. During the trial, the other woman in Shepard's life, medical technician Susan Hayes, testified Shepard loved Marilyn, but uh, not as a wife, and was actually contemplating a divorce. There was no evidence that Shepard ever abused his wife, and trauma expert Dr. William Fallon confirmed previous medical diagnosis that Shepard's serious neck injuries were almost impossible to self-inflict, owing to the position and severity of the injuries. He had a fracture of the vertebrae as well as swelling at the bottom of the skull. Now, the prosecution made much of the fact that there didn't seem to be any signs of forced entry into the house. The report that listed a damaged door in the basement um, was covered up by the police. A damaged flashlight that could have been the murder weapon was found in Lake Erie. But once again, it never made uh, the case. Despite the fact that the prosecution's case against Shepard was entirely circumstantial, he was convicted of second-degree murder December 21, 1954. He proclaimed his innocence to the court, but the police, at the behest of the media, had made up their minds. However, Shepard's conviction was not the end of the story. Uh, the case was revived in 1957 when a convict named Darnell Welder confessed to the murder. Police, of course, immediately dismissed his claims as complete fantasy. Nevertheless, Shepard's legal team continued to make numerous appeals and Shepard was finally released on bond in 1964 after serving nine years for a murder he, in all likelihood, did not commit. Lambasting the carnival atmosphere of the original trial, the court ruled the judge had failed to shield jurors and witnesses from the media circus surrounding the case. New trial was ordered beginning on October 24, 1966. Expert Dr. Paul Leland Kirk testified that Marilyn was murdered by a left-handed killer. Shepard was right-handed. And for those interested, uh, forensics can today pretty much tell you which uh, hand uh, was favored by the killer. Now, the court didn't find Shepard guilty, but it didn't declare him innocent either. When he was released, the rules under which the press could report criminal trials in the U.S. were rewritten to prevent another trial or newspaper ever happening again. Sam Shepard wrote a book about the case, published in 1966, entitled Endure and Conquer, My 12-Year Fight for Vindication. The teaser page uh, bore an interesting heading. Did Sam do it? Well, Sam went on to marry German divorcee Ariana Trebe-Johannes three days after his release from prison. They divorced in 1969, and he married a woman named Carrie Strickland that same year. Now, a lot of folks still thought Shepard was guilty, as did the police in uh, his community and the Cleveland newspapers. He lived under a crowd of suspicion, was barred from the medical profession. Can't have a killer operating on people. And for a while, he was, became a professional wrestler under the name of Killer. Sam Shepard. 
prone to alcohol and drug abuse, and in his situation, who wouldn't be? He died in 1970 at the age of just 46. Died of liver failure. His son said the true cause was a broken heart and a spirit of that found no solace. And I know how it is when clearly the court is against you. I'm dealing with that right now. Sam Shepard's son, Samuel Reese Shepard, devoted himself to clearing his father's name, and in 2000, a civil case was filed by the administrator of Sam Shepard's estate, Reverend Alan Davies, who was just as convinced as uh, Sam Jr. that uh, Sam Shepard was innocent. The state of Ohio declared Dr. Sam, Dr. Shepard had been wrongly imprisoned, and Sam could have sued the state over a 10-week trial. Seventy-six witnesses were called, and hundreds of exhibits were displayed. During that 2000 trial, plaintiff attorney Terry Gilbert offered another suspect for the murder, Richard Eberling. As owner of Dick's Cleaning Services, Eberling was regularly hired by the Shepherds to wash their windows. He'd had a difficult upbringing, having been in and out of foster homes by the age of seven. When he was 16, his foster father died suddenly, and rumors circulated Everling could have been involved in the death. He suffered from seizures and temper tantrums and was often caught lying and stealing. He started to lose his hair as a young adult, prompting him to wear hair pieces. In addition, he'd been convicted in 1989 of killing Ethel May Durkin, an elderly widow as part of a fraudulent scheme to collect on her will. Now, Eberling was first connected to the murder of Marilyn Shepard in 1959 when he was arrested for a string of robberies in Cleveland's west side. And many of the houses he targeted belonged to his window cleaning clients, and tens of thousands of dollars worth of items were stolen. One piece of particular interest to police was a diamond ring which Eberling kept apart from the other items he had accumulated. That ring had actually once belonged to Marilyn Shepard. Eberling claimed he'd stolen it from Dr. Shepard's brother's home where he found a box marked uh, property of Marilyn Shepard. Now, Eberling claimed he had lunch with Marilyn Shepard in her home two days before, uh, before her murder. He called her a lovely, lovely lady. Went on to tell police just days before Marilyn's murder he'd cut his finger while changing storm windows and he had dropped blood. He had dripped blood throughout uh, Shepard's home. In uh, February 1997, DNA testing on the blood found on the stairs while the semen found on Maryland was consistent with Eberling's DNA. Now, the, this DNA type was shared by approximately 5% of the population, and Bay Village police had wanted to pursue him as a suspect at the time, but uh, Cayuga County Prosecutor John Corrigan and Coroner Samuel Gerber considered the case closed. Shepard did it. Furthermore, Everling died in jail in July 1998 without admitting any involvement in Marilyn Shepard's murder. But a convicted robber named Robert Lee Parks, who was incarcerated with Everling, told police in August of 1998 that uh, Everling had confessed to him he'd kill Marilyn and that uh, anything Dr. Shepard had said about the bushy-haired killer was true. Eberling allegedly told Parks he'd gone to Shepard's home to rob it and to rape Marilyn, thinking that Shepard was working late. He also admitted he was wearing a bushy wig and makeup. So had Eberling killed Marilyn when she bit him and screamed for help while he raped her? And even though the old blood in the house matched the DNA profile of Dr. Shepard, instead matched Eberling, who was 
also found in possessions of Maryland's ring. The jury sided with the county prosecutors and declared uh, April 13, 2000, they couldn't find Dr. Shepard possibly innocent of his wife's murder. You have to understand that when you sue a community and you have members of that community sit on the jury, it's an automatic conflict of interest, but our geniuses that run the courts don't see it that way. February 22, 2002, 8th District Court of Appeals said the case should not have gone to court as the statute of limitations had expired and Sam Shepard's death had invalidated the wrongful imprisonment argument. And while Dr. Shepard and Richard Everling remain uh, the two main suspects, former FBI agent uh, Bernard Connors, in his book Tailspin, The Strange Case of Major Call, contends that Air Force Major James Arlen McCall killed Maryland during a cross-country crime spree, which ended in a deadly shootout with police at Lake Placid in New York. Connors points to a bite wound on Call's hand, which he believes was inflicted by Maryland during their struggle. And Connors also believes the murder weapon was a crowbar found in Call's possession. Well, F. Lee Bailey, the lawyer helped overturn Shepard's conviction, presented Spencer and Esther Hawk, neighbors of the Shepard's as suspects. The couple had been the first people on the scene when Maryland was murdered. And the motivation was that Esther had discovered her husband and Marilyn were having an affair and killed Marilyn in a rage. Bailey's theory was presented to a grand jury, but they decided against indicting the Hawks, who had been dead for years. Now, the interesting set of facts, and I came across this when I was doing the research 50 years ago. Hawk was the one that I, I mentioned. The, the, the shepherds moved their master bedroom, one end of the house to the other. And only a couple of days after that, uh, Mr. Hawk that's H-O-U-K, came into the house and needed to see Marilyn and was told he, she was in the master bedroom and he went directly to the new master bedroom. Well, it's also in the overview I gave, there was no mention, uh, as there should have been, that against one wall was the outline of a, of a man's body. Apparently he'd been covered with cast-off blood but the area where he was standing was clear. Well, that showed that there were two people involved in Marilyn's murder. The one that did the actual swinging of the weapon, I believe, was um, Esther, who was so incensed at her husband having an affair that uh, she followed him that night when he went to see Marilyn, thinking Dr. Shepard wasn't there. And... She burst in on him and began to beat Marilyn with something and ordered her husband to stand back Well, he'd get some of the same. Well, the murder of Marilyn Shepard gave rise to many books, inspired a 1960 TV series and 1993 movie, both called The Fugitive. Harrison Ford played in... Uh, the film and David Jansen played in the TV series. Led to a precedent setting Supreme Court decision on the affairs of pretrial publicity, ensuring the case a prominent place in both culture and legal history. You know, the, uh, the sad thing is, 
the short-sightedness of the Keystone Cops and the um, newspaper publisher who was dead set to bring down Shepard destroyed that man's life and uh, destroyed the, the family all to make themselves feel good. Uh, the killers, the real killers, who I believe was the Hawk family, husband and wife, were never tried and just sat back and smiled and watched Sam Shepard be crucified. I'm going to take the, uh, I've got all the material that I came up with when I did uh, my research 50 years ago, and it's hard to think half a century ago. And I'm going to bring out a new book. Uh, and see what folks think about the research that I did at that time. Well, let's talk about the murder of Lynn Harper and the arrest of a 14-year-old boy as the killer. And it has many of the hallmarks of a wrongful conviction. The investigation focused on Stephen Truscott as the main suspect. The evidence was corrupted to look incriminating and at a time when people had uncritical attitudes toward the justice system, he was convicted of her murder with almost no questions being asked. Since then, though, some highly questionable police work has come to light, and science has found a teenager guilty has been uh, thoroughly... Dis the, the science that found the teenager guilty has been thoroughly discredited. But if Stephen Truscott was, in fact, wrongly accused... Who really killed Lynn Harper? Well, that answer, that question has never been answered. Summer 1959, and Stephen Truscott's father was stationed at Clinton Air Force Base in Clinton, Ontario. Teenager attended the Air Vice Marshal High uh, Hugh uh, Campbell School located on the north side of the base. And it was at this school that he met 12-year-old Lynn Harper, daughter of an officer at Clinton. June 9, 1959, Lynn had dinner with her family before going outside at about 6.15 in the evening. Pleasant evening. It was summer. sun hadn't gone down yet. According to Stephen, he started chatting with Lynn outside their school at about 7 p.m. Said he asked, she asked if he could uh, give her a ride on his bicycle to Highway 8, where she planned to hitchhike to a quaint white house just north of the highway. The owner of that house kept ponies and... Lynn loved ponies. Stephen agreed, and Lynn perched herself on the handlebars of his bicycle, and off they went. Several witnesses later state that they spotted the pair cycling on a country road uh, running alongside the Bayfield River. That's a popular spot for swimming and fishing, which is on the, the way to Highway 8. What happened next is what many consider the crux of the case. Stephen asserts that he dropped Lynn off at Highway 8 and glanced back while cycling toward Bayfield Bridge and saw her get into a late-model Chevrolet with yellow plates. And that car then drove east. Others have argued that instead, Stephen took Lynn into a nearby woodland known as Lawson's Bush where he raped and strangled her. But when Lynn didn't return home that night, her father called police to report her missing. The Ontario Provincial Police led a team about some 250 military police and civilian searchers, and an extensive search ensued. 
Two days later, in Lawson's Bush, a search party member from the Clinton base made a terrible discovery. Partially hidden among the foliage was the semi-naked, lifeless body of Lynn Harper. She'd been raped and subsequently strangled to death with her own white sleeveless blouse, which was still around her neck. Her face and chest were dotted with maggots and larvae gathered near the buttocks. These gruesome details, ignored at the time, would one day be used as crucial evidence. And one thing, in the rush to judgment, you pick out who the who you're who you're sure the killer is, and screw everything else. Autopsy is conducted in a cramped, poorly lit room at Clinton Funeral Home. Regional pathologist Dr. John Penistein uh, issued three versions of the autopsy report, all of which featured a different time of death. Finally concluded Lynn had died on June 9th between 7.15 and 7.45 p.m. First two autopsy reports declared she died after 8 p.m. By the time the third autopsy report was issued, police had announced that Stephen Truscott was the main suspect in the killing. In order for him to become so, the timeline of events had to be tweaked to put the time of Lynn Harper's death before 8 p.m. This was because Stephen had been seen riding his bicycle near the schoolyard at about 8 and was home shortly after that to look after his siblings. So unless the time of death was firmly established as before 8, he could not be a suspect. June 12, 1959, Stephen Truscott, strongly protesting his innocence, was arrested for the murder of his school friend. The time of Lynn Harper's death and Stephen's whereabouts remained key issues at his trial. Defense witnesses who claimed to have seen Lynn and Stephen cross the bridge with children and the Crown dismissed them as liars. One of them, 12-year-old Gordon Logan, a friend of Stephen's, testified he'd seen Stephen and Lynn cross Bayfield Bridge after 7 p.m. and Stephen returned about five minutes later. The Crown claimed he was too far away from the bridge to be sure and had made the story up. Prosecution also challenged the testimony of another boy, Douglas Oates, who said he'd seen Stephen and Lynn crossing the bridge about 7.30. However, the courtroom testimony of Dr. Penistein, uh, comparable to a noose around Stephen's neck, claimed that the murder had occurred between 7 and 7.45 p.m. when Lynn Harper had been in Stephen's company. He based his assertion on the fact he found a full meal in Lynn Harper's stomach. Stomach normally takes two hours to empty, and her last meal had been at 5.45. Subsequent medical research, though, has shown the stomach may take up to six hours to empty. Despite the lack of physical evidence against him, Stephen Truscott was found guilty and sentenced to hang. His sentence was eventually commuted to life in prison and. 1960, the same year that his first appeal was denied. In 1966, the Supreme Court of Canada upheld his conviction. Three years later, he was released on parole. Following his release, he went on to marry and have three children while living under an assumed name. Kept a low profile until 2000 when his case was featured on CBC TV investigative documentary The Fifth of Fate, which portrayed the trial as a miscarriage of justice. In 2001, this, uh, the... Um, Association in Defense of the Wrongfully Convicted successfully filed an appeal to have the case reopened. 2006, the five judges for the Ontario Court of Appeals began a landmark review of the case, and Stephen Truscott stood trial once more in a bid to clear his name. 
Much of the proceedings focused on evidence that was unavailable to his lawyers in his original trial. Why don't we stack the deck while we're at it? After Michael Pollanen, uh, Ontario's chief pathologist, took the stand to announce, in his opinion, the original pathologist did not have enough evidence to support his findings that Lynn Harper died within a 45-minute window on the night of June 9, 1959. Dr. Pollanen said the time of death window should, must be broadened to include June 9th and June 10th. Blowflies, maggots, and insect activity on the body raised reasonable doubt she died as early as the original pathologist had determined. During the 50s, forensic entomology, the study of insect and decomposition, was practically non-existent. Despite this, insects were still collected at the time. Knowing when insects deposit their eggs on, or larvae on a corpse gives a clearer estimation of the time of death. The maggots and the larvae found on Lynn's body were in the first stage of development. Forensic entomologist Gail Anderson concluded that the insects began to colonize on Lynn's body on June 10th, indicating she'd been killed much later than, the previous, than previously claimed by prosecution. Truscott's story about his last moments with Lynn Harper were also readdressed in the Ontario Court of Appeal. During the 1959 trial, Lynn's parents had insisted their daughter would never hitchhike, refuting his account. However, Catherine Beamer, who'd been a close friend of both Lynn and Stephen, stated that uh, hitchhiking was common and that she and Lynn had done it at least 15 to 20 times. New testimony that harmed the defense came in from one of the original witnesses, Karen Dom, in 1959. Dom, who was nine years old at the time, told police she'd seen Stephen and Lynn near the railroad track south of Lawson's Bush at about 7.15. Uh, however, in 2006, she testified she'd actually seen the pair further south. She recalled that Truscott had veered toward her, causing her to fall off her bike into a ditch south of the trail leading to Lawson's Bush. The entire, uh, Ontario Court of Appeal, the defense, argued that once local police officers made Stephen Truscott their prime suspect, the murder investigation stopped, and other leads and tips were ignored. Several alternative suspects in the case were acknowledged in court documents but never publicly identified by name. They included a, con a convicted pedophile who was stationed at the Clinton base at the time of the murder. This unidentified man came to the attention of police in 1997 after a retired officer informed him he believed the man was capable of murdering that child. Another suspect was a former salesman who drove a 1957 Chevy and often visited the Clinton base. He first came to police attention when he broke into the home of retired detective Barry Rule and assaulted his wife before Rule overpowered and arrested him. Rule investigated this anonymous man and came to the conclusion that he was a suspect in several murders, including that of Lynn Harper. Well, court documents also referred to a convicted rapist who lived in the nearby town of Seaforth and worked as an electrician on the Clinton base. He visited the Harper home before the murder to repair a clothes dryer. And shortly after Lynn's murder, he moved to the U.S., where he was charged with sexual offenses for which he was acquitted. The fourth suspect mentioned in the documents was a minister who, later, who was later accused of sexual assault by his own adult daughters. One of them informed police that when she was six years old, she hid in her father's car when he took it out for a drive. She claimed he stopped on a gravel road and opened the trunk. And she peeked out and saw he was carrying the body of a girl toward some trees. About half an hour later, he came back to the car, alone. 
The final suspect, and the only other one to ever be publicly identified, was an airman who had once been stationed at Clinton Base. At the time of the crime, he was stationed at Elmer and had a home in Seaforth. He was an alcoholic with psychiatric problems and a sexual interest in children. Twelve days before Lynn Harper was murdered, he was released after being arrested for attempting to lure little girls to his car in nearby St. Thomas. This suspect was later identified as Sergeant Alexander Calicuchuk, who passed away in 1975. Many Clinton residents believe that the military deflected blame from, for Lynn Harper's murder to protect its reputation and as evidence pointed to disappearance of military records from 1959. Records being changed and altered by folks in positions of power, I can assure you that happens. In 2006, Lynn's body was exhumed for DNA testing in hopes that this would lead to the killer and prove Stephen innocent. Unfortunately, no viable DNA was retrieved. Despite the setback, Stephen Truscott was acquitted of all charges in August of 2007. His defense team wanted him to be declared factually innocent, but the court ruled that was impossible because in a case of circumstantial evidence like this, there's nothing on the record that would lead you to the conclusion he's factually innocent. Now, it's rare for a defendant to be declared innocent after being found guilty unless there's DNA evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person perpetuated the crime. The Harper family remained convinced of Stephen Truscott's guilt, and Lynn's father was taken to the hospital with breathing problems after uh, Truscott was acquitted. Nevertheless, most observers were satisfied with the outcome. Truscott himself remained legally critical of the legal system. He made the comment the Crown had most of this information 48 years, 2 months, and 19 days ago. The Crown chooses to not think about justice. It would almost appear they're more interested in convictions. 2008, Truscott was awarded $6.5 million in compensation for his time spent behind bars. On that hot summer's evening in 1959, Stephen Truscott and Lynn Harper who was perched precariously on his handlebars, cycled away from their school onto the highway and into Canada's legal history. Any retrials now unlikely owing to the amount of time that's passed. Most of those involved in the case are long since dead and evidence has been lost or destroyed. The murderer that robbed Lynn Harper of her life also robbed Stephen Truscott of his childhood and left him living under a cloud of suspicion for nearly half a century. See, the problem is... And I've had numerous uh, law enforcement officers tell me this. My original major in college was criminal justice, so I I hung out with a lot of uh, law enforcement officers. In investigating a murder, the good officer instinctively knows who the killer is. And all he's got to do is find the evidence to prove it. To me, that is absolutely hogwash. You may know in your mind who the murderer is, but that doesn't mean it's true. Um, You look at the evidence. You let the evidence take you to the logical conclusion. Um, I've been fighting a court case for nine years. Some of the most... Highly rated attorneys in this town have lied like rugs. I've had a federal judge. Now, I've been, our attorney was bribed to walk away from it. And 
being forced to medically retire uh, 20 some years ago um, and being legally trained I said well okay I'll just represent us and the first judge had a cow he had friends who needed employment I should be hiring one of the attorneys why they've already shown they're susceptible to bribes why would I want to go hire another one the um, then I discovered the city records which showed that the defendants or the people who sued us and their attorneys had lied and knew they lied. The um, the defendants or the or the, the folks that sued us and later became defendants when I counterclaimed um, had in fact been for uh, they were roofers and they had to post a bond. Their own bonding company sued me and said, look, the work is crap. Court, let us forfeit the bond. And there's so many people they've screwed. We'll let you divide it up and spread it around. And I went to the city, and I said, clearly, their own bonding company doesn't think their work was good. Why, why would you let them continue to do it? And a city official, I kid you not, said, look, people like you have plenty of money. And if you'd open up that wallet and spread it around, you wouldn't be having these troubles. I said, well, just out of curiosity, who are people like me? You Jews. This was a city official of El Paso, Texas. You Jews, you got plenty of money. If you just spread some of it around, you wouldn't have these issues. Which is interesting because I'm not Jewish. But the mayor, who I thought was a, a good man, refuses to even have a discussion with me about it. He doesn't return phone calls. He wound up in federal court. And the federal judge is the one that said, "My friend, I'm not going to rule against my friends. I'm not going to let a pro se beat a trained attorney in my courtroom. Is that justice? I don't think so. But nobody wants to listen to me because I'm one of you people. And you can't trust you people. Well, it's it's gotten to the stage that's going to the Court of Appeals. And one loser draw. I'm going to show the world what these fine, upstanding people have been doing to the legal system in this town. Well, on that note, we're out of time. We'll be back tomorrow. And once again, be listening to Ken Hudnall and Ken Hudnall Show. Until then, have a truly great evening.